Hello, welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. She's a pediatric surgeon who at the time when I talked to her in the middle of May was just wrapping up a stent working in the COVID-19 unit in New York. Um, she's a pediatric surgeon normally, um, but was in a position to be able to help out um, at this you know, pandemic time of need situation. Um, so today she talks about her experiences working in that unit, um, how she ended up there, why, you know, how she got interested in becoming a surgeon in the first place, all of these things. Um, yeah, and Colleen is also part of Homeward Bound, like a lot of our storytellers. She's Team HB3. Um, this podcast, even though it spawned out of Homeward Bound homework, sort of um, has really been able to connect me to a lot of uh, Homeward Bound participants in current and past cohorts, which has been a really, really nice thing. So I've gotten to go know a lot of awesome people like Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. So enjoy this conversation. I mean, by background, I, um, I'm a pediatric surgeon, um, in, uh, which means, you know, I did five years of general surgery training. Um, I did two years of research in addition to that, and then my two years of ped surgery fellowship. And so coming and doing COVID in an adult unit was relying more on my adult general surgery training as my sort of core foundation than what it is that I normally do for a living. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, it was definitely, it was an interesting experience to be sort of stepping outside what my normal now comfort zone is and, um, and getting back to, to taking care of adults. But it was also, I mean, it was a good experience for sure. It's weird because it's this, it's like this unknown thing, right? And so it's obviously it's a virus and causes this disease that, you know, we still really don't necessarily know the best way to treat it other than to just support people through it. And, you know, and it behaves in, in a way that's different than anything that we've dealt with before. Um, and so, you know, it's certainly, and just the sheer, sheer number of patients um obviously caught everybody off guard um and so so it's just been kind of interesting to to be in like that environment where you're trying to to deal with something and take care of patients and and still not really knowing what the best thing is to do and even over like you know a probably four to five week period of time like our approach sort of evolved you know reports about this working would come out and so then people would be all like all right let's do that and then somebody else would say well maybe this is the thing we need to try or that's the thing we need to try and so so even in a very short period of time there was significant i felt like evolution in in what we were trying to do um you know and, and part of it is that there was you know again there was such a high volume of patients it was in such a short period of time and nobody had the time to necessarily, you know, design a study or get IRB approval or be able to come up with a randomization scheme. And so, so it's like, we're, we've got all this information and people are trying different things, but, you know, a lot of it's going to, I think, just prove to be anecdotal evidence without, you know, um, you know, clearly, define like study criteria 
And yet at the same time, I think once somebody has the time to like catch their breath and start sorting through the data, I think there's going to just be reams and reams of information of, you know, things that we can learn. Um, but, you know, again, I think a big component of all of it was just that the healthcare system was so overwhelmed. Um, the, I, I worked primarily at two hospitals and the first one, um, you know, it was a hospital that doesn't normally have high acuity, critical, critically ill patients and, and isn't even necessarily, doesn't like have an in-house critical care doctor all the time. And all of a sudden they go from that to, you know, and, the, and the, I think their usual units like eight beds and they go from that to converting the recovery room area into just this giant big open ICU with like 15 critically ill patients. And, you know, so just to kind of look at like the different ways that hospital systems are overwhelmed and what does overwhelmed even mean? Is it just the sheer number of patients? Is it acuity of patients? Um, you know, it's, this is a hospital that didn't normally have, you know, critical care staffing for nursing, from nursing, you know, 24 hours a day, or even from physicians 24 hours a day. And so, you know, all of a sudden you start looking at, at those kinds of resources. And obviously then everybody knows about PPE because that was all over the news. Um, but it definitely makes you realize like, there are many things other than just a large number of patients that can overwhelm the system. Um, and, you know, and, and, and then, you know, there was a very high mortality rate, um, you know, and, and it was a weird situation because you had all these patients who were so sick and none of their family members could come and visit. Um, toward the end, we started letting um, like one or two family members at a time come, but usually it was in like the setting of your family member is likely to die today, you know, you can come and say goodbye. It wasn't like you're going to come and visit and sit for an hour and then come back again tomorrow and sit for an hour. And so, you know, you had had these patients who were so sick and they were, they were alone. I don't think probably most of them knew, knew that they were alone just because they were, you know, on medications to keep them sedated. And, but you know, their families are like, there's like this giant disconnect and then we're asking them to make difficult decisions and, you know, and they can't be present when their family member dies and then they can't have a funeral. And um, so it's just, it was a very, very kind of surreal environment to be in. Yeah, I'm sure I can't really imagine it. Uh, yeah. I haven't really spent much time in a hospital in general, except I had one friend who was in the hospital long-term with something and but he, and he was in ICU and stuff, but, you know, he wasn't, like, imminently about to die or anything like that, you know, so it was right. like the situation where you can come and visit and, you yeah. know, whatever. So I can't even imagine that I can't imagine, basically. <laughs> yeah, no, it, 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 it was, it was definitely certainly different than anything I've experienced before. Um, you know, it was frustrating to not be able to give people, like, answers, you know, people would call mm -hmm. and say, well, what happens after this? And it's like, you know what? I just don't know. Like, I don't, we don't know what this disease does. We don't know how it's going to behave. And, you know, and then the other thing too was, of course, anytime like some new therapy, you know, either popped up on the news or in social media, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, are you doing this? And, you know, there were some things that we could do. There were some things that we couldn't do. And then there were some things that just didn't make any sense to do. And, you know, and, 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 I think people were obviously grasping at straws. Um, and the other thing too, is I think because there was so much discussion about 
we could run out of ventilators, we could run out of this, we could run out of that. That I think there was a, a little bit of concern. Are you not doing something because like we're being rationed out or is it, you know, truly that you can't do it? And so I think there was like an, an extra element of like fear layered on top of a lot of fear to begin with. Yeah, I'm sure. And just trying to figure out what's the best thing to do with all of these other crazy things happening. Plus, you know, right. not knowing what's happening, really. You know, and, and one of the, um, one of the things that's thought to be a mechanism for the patients who get really sick is that their immune system sort of has this exaggerated response. And so, you know, one of the things we a lot of places have been using and we were using also, you know, would be a, um, an immune system modulator, which, you know, basically slows down that immune response. And so if, if it helps to get the exaggerated immune system back in line, that's great. But the downside of it is it then also makes you potentially vulnerable to other infections, right? And so it's, you know, you're, it's this balancing act, you know, you could, you could get the immune system quieted down, but then if you get some other you know, bacterial infection on top of, you know, the virus and, and, and all of the havoc that it has wreaked. Now you've got this other infection on top of it. So, you know, it's all balancing risks and benefits and, and, and not really even fully understanding what those risks and benefits are, because again, this is something that's so new that, you know, we just still don't have a ton of like great data on it yet. Right. And from what I understand, there's some interactions going on with like underlying other diseases or health issues. And so that's got to be different from person to person, I would imagine. Right. Yeah. I mean, certainly older patients, people with other comorbidities are going to be more at risk for having um, worse outcomes. Um, you know, and that's, that's not necessarily unique to this. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that, that's generally the case for a lot of things in healthcare, but, you know, certainly with this, it certainly is proven to be true. And um, obviously, or the other thing that's come out um, is just how different sectors of the population are being more significantly impacted. Um, you know, lower socioeconomic um, sectors, um, you know, and then um, uh, different races as well. And, you know, some of that may be because of access to healthcare and therefore comorbidities that haven't been well managed. And now you've got somebody who's sicker at baseline and then you throw this on top of it. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's probably gonna be multifactorial, but in the context of, of um, comorbidities, you know, I think that, I think one thing that we need to think about looking at when this is all said and done is just access to healthcare in general um, so that we have a healthier population um, so that when something like this comes and tips the scale, you know, everybody is in the best possible place to start with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. The reason I even thought about it is because, you know, so I'm so close to New Orleans and New Orleans is pretty hard hit, I guess, if that's the right phrasing to use. And the New Orleans population is different from a lot of places. Like I know a lot of places have, you know, wide range of socio economic factors, but the, um, the impact on the population were very different from a lot of places. I don't know what it, what it was in New York, but just seeing the numbers on like 
by race and then by underlying condition, it was like very astounding to me. Um, yeah. so that's why I thought about it. But I think, yeah, better access to healthcare for everybody would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, everybody be in better shape when something else crazy happens, you know, better right. starting point, right. as you said. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think, you know, something, an event like this, definitely like puts spotlights on healthcare in a way that you know we don't see it on a day in and day out basis so i think there's there's opportunities for us to look at this and see and decide you know going forward how do we as a collective want to be prepared for things like this you know and, and it's it's not only better access but it's disaster preparedness and um you know and and that can be an expensive thing to maintain um and you know and so there again cost benefit risk benefit analysis um is you know deciding like is this something we want to invest in or do we want to say well this only happens once every hundred years you know which i think would be not necessarily the best approach to take, um, especially, you know, I think, you know, certainly some of the science that's out there suggests that things like this may actually become potentially more commonplace as we start looking at climate change and, you know, disease patterns changing. And, and so I think, you know, it's, it's something that we need to really focus on or think about focusing on and, and investing resources in because I think going forward, you know, I would like to think this is the one pandemic I'll deal with in my career, but, you know, I think we need to think about being ready for worst case scenario. Yeah, I totally agree with you. One of my main complaints about just like humans and society in general is the uh, unwillingness to be proactive and commit to something versus like ultimately just spend more money reacting later to disaster, disease or whatever. Um, because it's easy to just like convince ourselves that, oh, it'll never happen. And then it does mean that spending like triple the amount of money. And if you had just like been proactive in the first place. Right. I mean, the, the, the problem and maybe problem is not the right word, but the, the, the challenge of good preventative public health measures is that if you avoid the worst case scenario, you never really know to what degree your investment was worthwhile. Right. And so, yeah. Um, you know, so it's, it makes it harder to make the case for investing in it because you don't necessarily know what the, the, the downside of it's going to be, right? I think, I think it would have been challenging to tell everybody to shelter in place and shut the economy down before people started getting sick. I think, you know, that would have been mm -hmm. in hindsight the best thing we could have done, you know, and, and then this way we wouldn't have had the systems get so overwhelmed so quickly. Um, but I think that it would have been nearly impossible to have the public will to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think it's, it's, a, it's definitely, it's a struggle. Um, and, and I think even, even in this experience, it will still continue to be somewhat of a struggle. And, and I think you see that, you know, in places in the country where, um, they maybe weren't quite as hard hit. Um, and, um, you know, and there's a big push to kind of open the economy back up and get things back to normal. And 
um, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next four to six weeks. Uh, I think that's an accurate assessment. That's what I, I would have said the same thing, even without the medical, not having a medical background. And I was thinking too, like just as disasters in general, because if you do a good job, you know, investing in being proactive, like you said, it looks like maybe you didn't need it, even though it's really just paying off, you know, right, right. it's hard to um, quantify that, I guess. Yeah. If that's right. Because I was thinking specifically like hurricane response, like if we build all these wetlands and it was, you know, limit storm surge, then it looks like, oh, well, we didn't need to do all that. But no, but really we did. You just can't see it. Right. Um, right. But the mindset's the same, whether it's public health or disasters or hurricanes or whatever. But. Which I think is the challenge for those of us in the STEM fields to be able to effectively communicate the science and you know I think that's a challenge that we all face is how to do that effectively and convey the message in a way that's meaningful and that um, I guess builds consensus um, you know even in the non-scientific communities to to have that commitment to take some of these preventative steps. Yeah I think that's probably one of the hardest parts of it honestly. Yeah. Yeah, I was, this is a little off topic, but I was talking to a friend of mine who's a meteorologist. And I mean, that's like daily science communication, basically, and distilling it down to, you know, like two minutes, basically, of a <laughs> news broadcast or whatever. But it's, it's something he spent like an hour on, you know, making the forecast, and now it's going to make it to two minutes. But it's like, I, know, I had never thought about it that way. So he's describing this man, you need to like teach a class in science communication in a way that like people can understand it and be persuaded to do one thing or the other, you know, like, hey, it's going to hail, stay inside or whatever. That's an extreme example. But, um, you know, I'm just like, I bet he has all these skills that I have never thought about before because he has to do it daily. And that's just something that like not a lot of scientists or people in STEM have to do daily, you know? You know, it's interesting. One of the exercises we did on the ship during our homeward bound um, voyage, we started off, we were paired up, and I think the initial time frame was two minutes. So you had two minutes to tell the person that you were partnered with, like, why it is you wanted to accomplish something or, you know, what you were trying to do. And then we, you know, so we did, we each had our two minutes and then gave each other some feedback and then it was cut down to a minute and then it was cut down to 30 seconds. And the 30 second pitch was so much better than the original two minute pitch because you really had to like pick your words carefully and be as succinct as possible and, you know, get to the points in a, in a very short period of time. And so, you know, even though, you know, going back to your point about you spend an hour making a presentation that you have to like deliver in two minutes, maybe getting the things distilled down to that, you know, sense of clarity is, is something that we all need to think about doing a little bit more. It's definitely a skill I need to learn better. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's two minutes is simultaneously not that much time and an awful lot amount of like, like the time, right. you know, yep. I can imagine something that could be said in 30 seconds, you would just like have all this fluff that seems important at first and then right. really not yeah. to that whoever you're communicating with. Yeah, I mean, when they first told us, okay, now cut it down to a minute, I was like, wait, what? I can't do that. <laughs> and then it was like 30 seconds. It's like, you've got to be kidding me. But then you realize it's like, oh my gosh, that was so much better than the first one. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I, and when I record the beginnings of this podcast, I keep it under two minutes because that feels like an eternity to talk to myself, which is what I'm doing because I'm just talking to my phone, right? So I'm like, oh, forever, just go listen to the conversation. Um, <laughs> so that's a where like, it feels like forever, but if I was trying to explain why I do the work that I do, like two minutes is not enough time, but, but it is, you know, because there's usually like one key thing. And that, that communicating that one key thing is, man, it's hard to do. Yeah, yeah. So how did you, so you live in St. Louis right now, but how did you end up going to New York to work in the COVID unit? So, so I, I left my job in St. Louis at the end of October with the plan that I was going to be moving back to New York, um, you know, going, coming back closer to home. And so um, I had done some interviews in November. I came home for the month of December just to like hang out and do the holiday Christmas thing with my family. I went to Africa in January and operated in Liberia with um, Doctors Without Borders for a month. And I came back and I interviewed a second interview here the first week in March when we were kind of still like, oh yeah, coronavirus. And <laughs> by the following week, they're like, yeah, this coronavirus thing seems like it's going to be real. We're probably not going to be able to get back to you right away. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I need to move. My parents were going to come out and help me get my house ready to sell. And because of the timing with like my nephew's college trumpet recital and Easter and everything else, the timing was best if my parents came out in the beginning of, of March. And so um, at the point that they came out, my level of concern related to COVID at that point was still like, you know, probably you shouldn't fly. So, you know, why don't you drive out? So they drove out and like literally as they were driving across the country, like things were starting to really like just blow up here. So they got to St. Louis and as you know, we were watching things unfold, I just had this like sense of like, I shouldn't be this trained person doing nothing and watching this from the sidelines. And so um, I didn't, you know, I, I had spoken with somebody that I used to work with at the hospital that I had left in St. Louis and it sounded like from a coverage standpoint, they were going to be fine. And I wasn't necessarily all that excited about working in the area anyway, if my parents were going to be in the house with me. And so um, so I reached back and, and I, at that point, like the New York state was like begging people to come from like, you know, come sign up and a friend of mine who works in the city, you know, she's like, yeah, the hospitals really need help. So I reached back out to the people who I'd interviewed with, you know, like, do you guys need help at all? And, and um, so I ended up getting like emergency disaster credentials. Um, ironically, I was credentialed in the department of medicine, even though, I'm a surgeon. So it was like totally like outside of the normal realm of things. And so my parents stayed with my dog in St. Louis and I came and stayed at their house here in New York. Um, and, you know, the hospital that I got assigned to, I think they literally just, they, however, in this hospital system, they kind of had everything pooled as far as like, these are the places that need help the most. Here are people and they kind of just match them up. So um, I ended up at, a community hospital on Long Island, which is, you know, not at all, it, it's in the same hospital system, but it's otherwise not really like necessarily tied to where I interviewed. And certainly it's not a place that 
has pediatric surgery at it normally. Um, and so, um, so I ended up there um, in that unit for about three weeks. And then um, what they ended up doing, <clears throat> excuse me, was as the number of cases started to begin to drop off, they ended up transferring the patients that were still at that hospital to other hospitals within the system so that they could make that a clean hospital and start to address the backlog of surgical cases that we're building up. You know, because patients who in the peak of all this that were like, you know, diagnosed with a cancer or, you know, needed to have their gallbladder take, like all of that stuff was just kind of put on hold. So it wasn't like a backlog of just elective cases that got postponed, but really more like urgent things that needed to be addressed. And so so they ended up cleaning that hospital, you know, making that a clean hospital, non-COVID, and um, starting to address some of the surgical backlog there. And so then I transferred to one of the other hospitals in the system, which is actually um, a hospital that shares space with the children's hospital that I'm looking at. Um, gotcha, yeah. Because on the surface, it seemed really random, but it's not, because I mean... Yeah, no, it's... <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, uh, it, it and it's kind, it is, it's kind of a random string of events that like my parents ended up out there at that point. And, um, but yeah, no, it all, it all kind of falls into place, but it, you know, it was, it just like, it didn't feel right to not be doing something. It, you know, you, you heard stories about the FBI raiding people's houses who are like hoarding like N95 masks. And I'm like, well, by all rights, the FBI could come and raid the house here because I'm like a squandered resource as a trained medical person that's not doing anything. Um, you know, and, and like, I didn't know what they would, you know, want to use me for or how I could be helpful, but I, you know, I knew I could, I knew I could help in some way. Um, and so, you know, and it just, like I said, it didn't feel right to be sitting on the sidelines and, 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 knowing that I could be helpful. And, and, you know, and this is also, I mean, this is probably going to be the defining like healthcare moment in my career. Um, you know, and so it, it you know, in for a variety of different reasons, it's, it just kind of wanted to be a part of the solution and not just watching on the sidelines. No, I, I totally understand that. I've had like a similar pivot moment, I guess, in my life. Uh -huh. Um, I had just got out of grad school in 2010 and then the BP oil spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico. And mm. so it was a similar thing. Like I was working in New Jersey and Maryland, this massive tragic thing is happening back at home. And my job ended and I was like, why well, don't have it? It was like a seasonal job. I don't have anything else lined up. So I'm just going to go and just like find some way to be involved and put myself to work. Cause it like you said, didn't feel right to not be doing something as someone. Yeah. Who's yeah. Um, and that moment, as tragic as the oil spill was, kind of like launched me into this wetlands world. Um, okay. So, uh, which is interesting, you know, happenstance, this, this horrible, tragic thing happened, but it was like a pivotal moment in my personal career. So similar stories, yeah. you know, different, yeah. different disasters. Um, yeah, no, and it's, I mean, you know, at the point that I left my job, this was like, I wouldn't have even conceived of like making this up as a, this is how the year is going to go story. And yet this is how the year has gone. <laughs> yeah. I think we, I can't speak for all of this, but I feel like a lot of people were like, Oh, 2020, we're going to wipe the slate, slate clean. It's going to be a good year. It's a new decade. And the universe is just like, nah, that's not going to happen that way. Right. That's just how it feels. Uh, nobody would have thought that 2020 was going to be going like this. I think. Um, no, I don't think so.
how did you get into medicine in the first place? Because I've, I've talked to a few people and it seems like everybody either gets into it by accident or like a drive when they're young. Um, I'm yeah, sure. I'm in the former. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was graduating from high school and was like, oh, I like math and science. I'll be a biomedical engineer. So, you know, I looked at the different schools that had biomedical engineering and I think I applied to like 10 places. And then I get this very pretty shiny brochure in the mail from the University of Miami. And I was looking to stay like in the Northeast. Um, and um, they had at the time a combined engineering and medicine program. So if you got into the program, as long as you maintained a certain GPA for undergrad, you would have a spot waiting for you in the medical school. It didn't save any time. So Miami also has like a six year med school program where you just do two years of undergrad. This didn't save time because obviously you're not going to get an engineering degree in two years. But, you know, so I was like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. And these palm trees are really pretty. So I filled out the application and I sent it in. And, um, you know, kind of like didn't really think about it. And then I got a letter offering me an interview and I'm like, hey, mom, let's go to Florida for the weekend. So we go down and, you know, at that point I'd done a lot of my other undergrad interviews. So you do the, the typical meet with the people in the admissions office, tour the campus, that whole like thing. And then they put us on the train and we go down to the medical school and I meet and I talk with some people and then, you know, so then we're on the train going back and my mom looks at me and she's like, I think you just applied for, or just interviewed for medical school. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I got in. And, you know, then I had to like make a decision about where to go, um, you know, cause I had all these other like engineering places lined up as possibilities and, and really decided that actually Miami was a really good fit. And so I went, ended up going down there and, and doing medicine. And then, um, you know, even my choice for surgery and pediatric surgery was not this like long, well planned out thing. Um, when I started my third year of medical school, which is when you start actually finally doing your clinical rotations, I was actually engaged. And so I was looking at like, oh, what kind of field can I go into or I can have a nice lifestyle and have a family and have time to do all of that. And then ended up breaking off the engagement about halfway through the year. And I, my next rotation was like my surgery rotation. I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> and so, um, but honestly thought I would just do, you know, five years of general surgery and, and that was going to be it. Zero intention of doing any research at all. And then um, toward the end of my internship, um, a couple of different people said, hey, you know, somebody from your class is going to have to do a year of research. You should think about doing it. And it's one of those things where it, I think it's a great like example of how like good mentorship or sponsorship can really like help somebody along because I would have never even like thought about it. I had no interest in it, but as soon as other people had interested in me doing it, it then sort of became something that I was then interested in. So I ended up doing two years of research and I just, I did it. At, I was um, on active duty in the air force for my residency. So I did the research at the base and, you know, it was, trauma resuscitation sort of related to, you know, wartime injuries. Um, and, you know, did that. And then in the military, um, when you're picking a specialty, you can't just do whatever you want. Like the military has to need you to do that. So, you know, they'll 
at the beginning of the year put out a list of, okay, we need somebody to do vascular surgery. We need two people to do colorectal. We need three trauma surgeons. We need one pediatric surgeon, you know, whatever the case may be. And I, I honestly never imagined that there was going to be a pediatric surgery spot available, but the year that I was going to be applying for fellowships, there was a pediatric surgery spot. And I happened to be on a pediatric surgery rotation that was brand new for that year of residency. So we never used to do a peds rotation in fourth year. And then my year, they, they started having us rotate on the surface again. So I was on peds surgery and then the Air Force had a spot and I was like, I really like this. And, and I had checked all of the boxes that I needed to check to be able to be a competitive applicant. And so even that wasn't necessarily something that I had like been planning on doing for years and years and years, so. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I used to, I used to say, oh, I just got lucky, which I've come to appreciate that I was lucky that the opportunities presented themselves at the time that they did, but I had worked very hard so that when each door opened, I was able to walk through it. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was like my friend Hillary says that luck is just being qualified and having the opportunity. Like right. you have to have both. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll read the same book or something because she said it almost the <laughs> exact same way. <laughs> uh, which is funny. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. So my best friend, well, she's out of the army now, but she was a medic in the army. And so it's interesting to me how different people in different branches end up doing like very different medical things. Um, and a medic's, you know, different, obviously, than surgery. But so she just like, thought that blood was cool and, you know, wanted to do that. I, this is basically the extent of it. Um, so it's just funny how people end up doing different things. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I was, when I started medical school, I was like totally clueless what even a lot of these different terms even meant. You know, if somebody was an intern or if somebody was an internist at that point, I didn't understand the difference between the two, you know, and one is a first year resident in basically any field. And the other one is somebody who's done a residency in internal medicine and, you know, is an internal medicine doctor and like I, you know, board certified. <laughs> and, and when I was first in medical school, like I would have thought they were the same thing. Yeah. I can see how that would be very overwhelming. Yeah. 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 So it's, you know, it's your vocabulary increases like exponentially and <laughs> that was part of it <laughs> yeah i could see that what you just said made me think of this is totally off topic but um a book i just read talked about having like precise language for something so like having better vocabulary using the correct word for something not just like a general vague word for something mm -hmm. it's like kind of the same thing it should be a lot of words for a lot of different things yeah <laughs> what book was it it was one of the books in the Giver series. I can't remember which one. It's like there's four books in that series. Okay. Um, the Giver by Lois Lowry. It might have been a, I don't remember which one. I don't want to lie to you. But in one of them, one of the characters is like, you know, just talking like a kid. And the parents keep like, no, talk more, you know, more precise language. What do you mean exactly? Yeah, yeah. Um, just made me think of that. Because I think as people, we do that. But as doctors, that would be a problem. <laughs> was like when you went to Africa with Doctors Without Borders. Was that the first time you'd ever gone, or is this something you do semi regularly? I don't no. know how that works. I, so I, when I was a fellow, um, since I was 
in the Air Force and I knew exactly what my job was going to be when I finished. I didn't take off time to go and do interviews. And so my program director said, well, you know, if you want to take that chunk of time and use it in some way, you know, we can try and make that work. And one of the other faculty members used to go to Nicaragua every year. So I went with him to Nicaragua. I think it was probably around like 10 days. So that was the only overseas work I had done previously. Um, but as I was kind of going through the events leading up to making the decision to, to leave my old job, one of my mentors who I was talking to about things along the way had actually gone overseas to Liberia probably about a year and a half earlier. And he said to me, he's like, you know, if you're in between and you're looking for something to do, don't forget that they're always looking for surgeons to help out over there. And it just like, that was like the perfect thing. Like I, you know, at that point, like I feel like I just needed an opportunity to go and practice medicine and like just be practicing medicine and not have to worry about all of the other like headaches of administrative stuff and, and um, you know, worry about, you know, electronic health records and this and that and the other thing. Although in retrospect, an electronic health record would have been very helpful because without it, and when you have a new surgeon every six to eight weeks, there's a lot of um, lack of continuity in the records, but that's a side point. Um, I, uh, so it was the first time I'd done anything like that in a long time, not the first time ever, um, but uh, it was it was definitely a really good experience. Um, I think, I mean, obviously being there, helping take care of kids, because it was, that was a pediatric hospital that we were at. So it was, it was just all pediatric surgery. Um, and it was, it was um, a lot of basic stuff. It was mostly just hernia repairs, which is definitely one of the more common operations that we do um, in pediatric surgery in general. But this was, you know, a patient population where there are hernias that have been ignored for like several years because, you know, their access to care to get them fixed is, is very limited. Um, but one of the things I think that impacted me most was it's probably the most diverse team I've ever worked on. So um, the, the hospital was mostly staffed by Liberians. So the nurses in the hospital were all Liberian, the um, folks in the operating room were Liberian, the techs, the um, housekeepers, you know, the logistics people, um, like the mechanics and stuff, they, those were all Liberians, but there was an expat team. And I think there was about 10 of us. There was a, an overall program coordinator. There was a logistics person for the hospital, somebody for, for HR. There was a physician that was kind of like the overseeing the operation. And then there was a pediatrician and anesthesiologist, a surgeon. And we also had a nurse anesthetist with us. And we had, so it was like the US, Australia, Cameroon, Ethiopia, Paris, Sudan, um, all like, you know, represented on the team with people coming and going from the Congo and Kenya. And, you know, and it just, it was, it made me really realize how diversity truly adds to a team and, you know, makes the team a lot stronger. Um, and, and not that I haven't been in, in environments where we've had some diversity, but definitely not to that extent. Um, so that was just, it was, I don't know, it was kind of like fun to witness it.
Yeah, it sounds like it was a really, um, I don't know if cool is the right word, because, you know, you're helping kids and doing things that are totally necessary, but it still sounds like a cool experience. Yeah, yeah. And just, you know, even seeing, like, how people live in a different country and transportation and communication. Excuse me, the official language in Liberia is English, but it is probably the closest experience I've had to what it would be like to hear a different dialect. So like I had to have a translator help me communicate because I couldn't understand what patients were saying. And oftentimes they couldn't necessarily understand all of what I was saying either. Um, so that was definitely, it, it's, it's definitely, it's a strange experience, you know, because like when you have a language that you don't understand at all, you're totally at the mercy of the translator to say what it is that you're wanting to communicate, but you have absolutely no idea what it is that they're saying. Whereas when you have somebody translating your English into English, you kind of hear what they're saying and you're like, I don't know if that's exactly the way I would say it or, or, or I would tend to say, I would maybe give more information than they were giving. But then you also, I also started to realize like, I don't necessarily think that the families were expecting and or interested in hearing all that I would have normally had to say. So kind of like adapting to the cultural norm, you know, was also, um, in the communication piece of it, just a, an interesting challenge. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I, when there's not a pandemic, enjoy traveling quite a bit. And that's one of my favorite things is just like seeing how people in a different place live, like what's in their grocery store, like what are, what are things that they, you know, even if it's English, everybody has different words for things, you right. know. Um, that's another thing they like. And just like meeting new people is awesome. Um, yeah. But that's yeah. like in expert mode, what you just did. <laughs> Yeah, that's really yeah, cool. No, it was, I would I would love to go back at some point. I feel like you'll probably make that happen. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you. It's like normally I love to travel. No, I like don't want to get on an airplane. <laughs> right. Uh, I don't even want to leave my house right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about doing field work um, in a couple of weeks, like maybe early June, but it would just be day trips. Mm -hmm. um, like me and my co my one coworker, she and I together going to one, you know, only stopping to get gas when we need to, going to do our field work and coming right back, which in the grand scheme of things is relatively safe. Um, yeah. Still makes me anxious. Not just yeah. because, and it, I think it's more because I haven't left my house in two months hardly except to go get food. Yeah. Uh, and it just feels like, it feels weird more than scary, I guess. Uh -huh. It's gonna be a weird rest of the year. Yeah. The it'll be it, it's gonna be interesting to see how sort of this new normal evolves and what it looks like and you know and kind of going back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier with access to healthcare and disaster preparedness. But I think I mean I think there's a chance for us to maybe make it better if we do it right. Um, I was. Um, speaking with some other people earlier today and, you know, even just talking about a lot of places that have now realized that letting employees work from home, it's actually like potentially a good thing. Like maybe they're more productive and then you save costs and which is great for the company, but then what does that do to the real estate industry? Right. And, you know, and, and kind of the action reaction is it, it's going to be interesting to watch it evolve. 
Uh, yeah, for sure. I, I know that I love working from home. <laughs> um, and it's been a weird spring for me because I'm normally gone Monday through Friday every week, um, uh -huh. like more than half of the year. So it's been nice. I've actually been home for more than two weeks at a time, which uh -huh. was the record for like the last year and a half until now. Um, so I don't, my boss might have to pry me out of my chair in my living room. <laughs> Especially because our office is just like, it's this old building. It was built in the 30s. It's, you know, it's full of wildlife that isn't supposed to be in an inside building. Uh, and my internet's better at my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back to the office, obviously. But uh, I think that we have all seen the benefits of teleworking and we will all just like yeah. as much as possible now. Well, I mean, I think from a, a healthcare standpoint, I think telehealth is going to be now a much more, you know, viable um, option than it, you know, had been previously. I think this will have really sort of pushed that along as, you know, something that we will have to look at much more seriously. You know, it's, it's something that people have done some work with and played with, but, you know, it was always an issue of figuring out like billing and licensure and, you know, if you're in one state, but you're doing telehealth for a patient in a different state and, you know, and, mm -hmm. and this has kind of forced us to just cut through all of that and come up with a solution. And, and so whether or not people are going to say, oh, that was a disaster solution versus this is a solution we can carry forward, you know, again, time will tell. Mm -hmm. uh, this is totally random, but one of the things I've discovered from this is that uh, you can order from Target and do a drive up and they just bring it to you. <laughs> I hate shopping in general, but you know, some things I can only get at Target and Baton Rouge, like contact solution. I have to go to Target to get the only ones that have right. it. And so every like two months, just go get the necessities. And I'm just like, oh, I don't want to go in Target. Well, now I don't have to. <laughs> right. This whole thing. And they're not the only place. There's a couple places that are, have done things like that. Like the produce place now sells produce in a box. And you just like pay for it ahead of time and just pick up your box and leave. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, I, I, had a, I had a crate of wine delivered to my house in St. Louis yesterday. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I hope that these things, things like that just keep going because I would totally just buy a box from that place every three weeks instead of like buying produce every week at the regular grocery store, you know, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not health related, but it's one of those things that like people immediately adapted to, oh, well, we can do this and make it work still. That mm -hmm. it was like, oh, this. Why weren't we doing this before? But because yeah. it wasn't necessary. But maybe we can just keep it going. Yeah. Um, and that applies to a lot of things besides just you know the produce stand. Um, right. Yeah. No. I. I mean, I, I think that's the point. Is you know, the, it's going to make us realize that there are different ways of doing things, and maybe mm -hmm. some of them are better. Yeah, I'm sure they probably aren't all better. Um, yeah. But I mean, people are biking more in Baton Rouge, which is you know awesome in a lot of ways except the Baton Rouge isn't built for people to be biking, uh -huh. um, except that they've, you know, there's less cars on the road, so it's just inherently safer already. Um, and it'd be nice if, uh, you know, we had more bike lanes while there's nobody on the road, maybe they could just figure that out, but I don't <laughs> <think> I will. <laughs> but, uh, but it is kind of cool, you know, it's just things like that, that people are learning that they didn't, maybe they didn't know they liked biking and now they do because there's like been a run on bikes. Mm -hmm can't even find a bike right now for sale yeah which yeah. is awesome just stuff like that and that's also you know good for people's health to get out of their house and exercise you can do it as a group families or whatever yeah, yeah I don't really have any other questions I only had a few to begin with um is there anything else you want to uh share 
I'm just thinking, I mean, we covered COVID pretty extensively. Um, you know, pediatric surgery is, um, is what I love doing. Um, you know, I think, I think kind of tying the two things together, um, you know, I think when you look at like healthcare in general, this kind of ties back into sort of what my message was with my symposium at sea. Um, you know, healthcare in the U.S. is a huge greenhouse gas producer. Um, and, you know, I kind of feel like I'm a pediatric surgeon taking care of the generation that's going to inherit this planet. Um, and so one of the things that I would like to see happen even before COVID, but especially now, you know, after COVID is how can we do things more efficiently and more sustainably so that healthcare isn't, you know, as much of a part of the problem, you know, and maybe can, can start to be part of the solution. Um, but that's, you know, sustainability in healthcare is, it's a, you know, it's a whole nother side tangent, but I think it's something that is, again, something that we need to start thinking about, you know, how can we fix that and what are our solutions going to be long-term? Um, you know, how can we make this sustainable, efficient, cost-effective, you know, ready for the next disaster, you know, all of those things bundled in. And, and I think, you know, I think, I think as we rethink not only healthcare, but a lot of these other, you know, sort of new normals is how can we do it in a way that makes it more sustainable? Mm -hmm. I really hope that question is asked about all of the things moving forward. Yeah. Uh, I shows how little I know. I never thought about healthcare and like greenhouse gases before. I just maybe because it's not my wheelhouse, but what is it that is that makes it on that list? Is it buildings or equipment or? I'm I think it's probably yes. Um, <laughs> so there was a study that was published, I think it was in 2016, and they looked at the amount of, you know, greenhouse gas from healthcare. And if the U.S. healthcare economy was its own country, it would like rank 12th or 13th in the world. But it's it's buildings, it's materials, it's disposables, um, it's laundry it's incineration you know it's and and that's it all of those things are not only greenhouse gases but then you know other forms of emissions and waste product and um, um you know i think it's if if you get into like the nitty-gritty of like every little thing and how it's processed you know there's there's so many components to it um but uh, but yeah no it's i mean it, it's a huge part of our economy right so it makes sense that it would be a a big contributor but it's one of those things i think too people sort of give it a pass because it's healthcare mm -hmm. and you're helping people so you need to do whatever it is you need to do which on one hand is true but on the other hand there's also a lot of room to make it more sustainable yeah i i think both those things can be true like yeah it's a noble cause or good or whatever but also like if there's room for improvement we could do that too. Right, exactly. Scary. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm just so in my like wetlands and birds world that I sometimes forget that other things <laughs> exist. And so, and I, again, don't know much about like the medical field, but I learned from someone in HB5 that like buildings are, you know, major greenhouse gas em emissions sources or whatever. Mm -hmm. And when I thought about it, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But I had never thought about it. And so, uh, yeah. And hospitals are massive. Right. Um, 
And we have, well, there's two in Baton Rouge. The third one is shut down, but the building's still there. Um, they closed it because they didn't have money. Uh, yeah. But they used it as a COVID hospital. They, I mean, they just shut it like two years ago, so they just, the building was still there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, but it's, it's are the lights on? Are you cooling to whatever temperature all yeah. the time? Are you heating to whatever temperature all the time? Um, you yeah. know, could you put solar panels on the roof? Like, you know, all of that right. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking about the one in the middle of Baton Rouge. Like, it's, I think, eight or, I think it's like eight stories. But you know, they're pretty full a lot of the time on a regular basis. I don't know what the percentage is, obviously, but. You know, you drive past and there's loads of lights on at night because there's people in there, right? right. So yeah, it makes sense. It just, I never, never thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, and for some reason, when my friend was in the hospital, it was always frigid in there. <laughs> so it like brought him extra blankets. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's just, and that, you know, I mean, you don't want people like sweating and also sick, but still. Right, but but if you have a patient room that's empty, it doesn't need to be that cold either, right? Yeah. And the lights don't need to be on. Yeah. Or offices with lights that are on, you know, like that, all that kind of stuff. And yeah. that's, I mean, the, and that building piece of it, that's not necessarily unique to just to hospitals. Right. I mean, that's the same for a big, huge office building anywhere also, but. Yeah, or any bedroom or whatever in somebody's house. Right, yeah. right. The same principles apply, big scale, small scale. So. Yeah. Our office is, you know, my work is probably not using much of anything because it doesn't have central air. There's nobody <laughs> there to use lights. So, uh, you know, except the roaches, but they can't work light switches. <laughs> I don't think anyway. So I do have one last question. What's your favorite part of, or favorite thing about your career in pediatric surgery? Hmm. Or about you know your type of job in general maybe. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think it always comes back to just taking care of the kids. You know, their children are so resilient. You know, and and um, you know, taking care of them, helping them get better. You know, seeing them smile, knowing that their parents have trusted you with their child. Um, you know, it's it's a huge honor it's a huge responsibility um and uh it's just it's extraordinarily rewarding yeah that's awesome yeah yeah i bet that would be rewarding yeah that's awesome it's been so nice to meet you yeah likewise i hope you enjoyed hearing uh today's storyteller and if you want to find out more, I share a bunch of information and resources from every storyteller over on the podcast Facebook page. So go find us and like us. It's called Storytellers of STEM on Facebook. You can also find the same information and stuff on my Twitter at Flying Cypress, F-L-Y-I-N-G-C-Y-P-R-E-S-S on Twitter. I'll share all kinds of information and resources from each storyteller over there. Um, And if you would like to be on the podcast, I'm always looking for STEM storytellers. So if you have a story you'd like to share, uh, message me on Facebook or Twitter or check out my website, rachelvillani.com slash podcast. And there's a submission form and it will send info to me and then I will get in touch. So if you want to be on the podcast, hit me up. Thanks for listening.